This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Tayu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Many Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with Bernardo Kastrup, philosopher and author of many books and essays, including The Idea of the World, A Multidisciplinary Argument for the Mental Nature of Reality, and More Than Allegory on Religious Myth, Truth, and Belief. Bernardo Kastrup is the executive director of Essentia Foundation. His work has been leading the modern renaissance of metaphysical idealism, the notion that reality is essentially mental. He has a PhD in philosophy, ontology and philosophy of mind, and another PhD in computer engineering, reconfigurable computing, and artificial intelligence. As a scientist, Bernardo has worked for the European Organization for Nuclear Research, CERN, in the Phillips Research Laboratories, where the Casimir effect of quantum field theory was discovered. Formulated in detail in many academic papers and books, his ideas have been featured on Scientific American, the Institute of Arts and Ideas, the blog of the American Philosophical Association, and Big Think, among others. Bernardo Castro, welcome to The Mystical Positivist. Pleasure to be here. Great to have you. Great to have read your work. I'll begin with our usual, our now traditional usual first uh, question to first-time guests, and that is to invite you to cast your mind back in memory to youth and childhood and invite you to consider any moments, any particular experiences, etc., that in retrospect, you could, you could say we're harbingers, we're, uh, we're things that could have predicted that your career, your interests, et cetera, would take the direction that they have taken um, that we'll be discussing later um, in this conversation. I've never thought about that. Um, I would have to do an extensive memory review to try to find something. Um, I, I, I don't know how I... Well, I know, deep inside I know, but um, that I am doing what I'm doing today under the circumstances in which I am doing it was not something I ever expected or quite envisioned. When I was very young, in my teens, I thought I would die very early at around 35. I don't know why, it didn't stress me, but I, I had this clarity that I would die at 35. And I did, just not in the way... <laughs> I thought I would, uh, but since then, um, everything that has unfolded in my life was completely unexpected. Uh, my teenage self would never, never have anticipated what uh, unfolded from my 35th year onwards. Hmm. Was there something in your 35th year that you could relate to our audience that would help me and them understand um, what you're talking about here. Sure. Um, my father died. I was 12. So one of my coping mechanisms uh, at the time was to sort of 
have a plan for my life and understand exactly where I wanted to go. And of course, that uh, entailed a list of things that I wanted to achieve. I wanted to be an academic and publish in many scientific journals. I wanted to work uh, at CERN in Switzerland. Um, I wanted to have a doctorate. I wanted to marry my sweetheart, whoever <laughs> that would turn out to be. Um, and and by the time I was 34, I had ticked all the boxes. I had a doctorate. I had worked at CERN. I had academic papers. Um, I was married to, to the person uh, who I fell in love with in my early 20s. Um, I was probably the youngest director in the company I worked for, which is a you know, Europe top top fifty. Well, now I can say because I don't work there anymore. I used to work at ASML, uh, which is sort of you know the epicenter of semiconductors in the world today. Mm. I worked there for fifteen years, and I I had just gotten a a promotion that I hadn't expected. I got two promotions in the space of like nine months, um, and I realized, okay, I've arrived. Uh, I am here. And then I also realized that I thought I had control of everything, but I didn't have control of anything at all because things can just spring at you. You can get sick. Your loved one can get sick and there is nothing you can do about that. And my world came crashing down because all my goals were achieved and I realized uh, control is an illusion and I just didn't know how to deal with that. And from that point on, my life has taken a course that was not defined by my ego. Uh, which in the first years were very was very difficult. It was a struggle. Now I've um, totally come to terms with it. Uh, I'm I'm perfectly okay not knowing at all where I'm gonna be one year from now, let alone five. Um, I'm not trying to wrestle control of the direction of my life. Whatever is unfolding through me will unfold. My only job is to have moral oversight. Um, ethical oversight of where it's going and uh, for the rest i just sit back relax and let nature do whatever it is whatever it wants to do through me <laughs> that's the game now so i did die at 35 <laughs> if you know what i mean <laughs> yeah so was that was that uh realization or that uh encounter something that happened in a short period of time or was it did was it something that evolved more like there was a there was a subtle shift that then started to ramify as you reflected upon your life. Uh, it was it was uh, pretty sudden. <clears throat> um, the year all this unfolded, I had also bought my first freestanding house in Europe. You know, to live in a freestanding house in highly densely populated areas like the Netherlands, it's not trivial. So I had just moved, and uh, and I was taking a a bath in my brand new <laughs> freestanding house. <laughs> And the whole world came crashing down inside my inside my head. Wow! Because uh, you know the the best thing to get rid of your illusions is when you achieve your illusions, because then you then you realize that okay, you are there, you got them, and you can run your fingers through them, and it's gaseous. There is nothing there. There never was. Uh, and 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 that when you have a sort of a a controlling personality like I had, you know, had a career very early, had what most people would say, you know, some degree of power in life very early, uh, that uh, fundamental changing perspective that you're not prepared for. And of course, that continued to unfold for months, even years, until I found a measure of uh, 
peace with that new mode of being. Um, and and to, to this day, it's still unfolding, uh, but it's not a big struggle anymore. Uh, there, is a, there is some peace now. So the struggle was, uh, was allowing the absence of further goals to be okay in part? In, in part, it was that. But uh, the struggle is to allow nature to have control of your life and not you, not, not your ego. When I say you now, I mean your ego. That, um, that understanding that your life is not about you, has never been, will never be. And if you try to make it about you, then you turn into Atlas and you have to carry the weight of the world on your shoulders and that will just crush you. Um, so understanding this and, and, and allowing this to be the case, allow your life to not be driven by your ego, uh, allowing your life to unfold without your control. You need moral oversight. Uh, but beyond that, you know, allow nature to do through you whatever it wants to do, allow the impersonal in you to sort of manifest itself through you, knowing that it doesn't have you as an agenda. It, it's not worried about whether you are comfortable or not, whether you have status or not, whether you're sick or not, whether there is a roof over your head or not. Uh, it doesn't care about any of that. It, it It is its own thing. It does its own thing. It has its own agenda. And finding some kind of peace and compromise with it that still allows you to make sure that you can survive with a minimum degree of comfort and care for your loved ones. But other than that, allowing the impersonal to flow through you, that has been an exercise of years. Well, to, go ahead. You know, to stand back and, and, and let it happen. I, I, I just have to comment that, that uh, what you're describing, the process that you have been going through, and as you say, continue to go through, sounds to me an awful lot like a, uh, um, you, 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 uh, I'll, I'll interrupt myself to say in our conversation just before we started this uh, recording, you had disavowed the term mystic as a, to be applied to yourself. And yet what you've just described to me um, would in some quarters be received as a um, mystical realization of a sort. I'm not saying there are, there's one mystical realization, but it strikes me that that what you are um, what you're describing is relatively rare in the way that you describe it, having experienced it, and that it has a quality to it that is not um, not commonly understood to be as special as I think it really is. Maybe I'm prejudiced about uh, the word mystical, because to me, it has connotations of a certain romanticism mm. and uh, a certain moral bias towards the good and, mm. and, and the eternal and the great and the fantastic. And I, I didn't mm. experience this that way. Um, mm -hmm. If okay. anything, it, it was very difficult, um, oppressive, um, scary, um, another prejudice I might have is that to me, the word mystical sort of seems to be associated with something supernatural, some kind of reflective supernatural agency. And that's not how I experienced it at all. Um, I experienced it in, 
as something very real and in that sense not banal but but common present it's just nature it's just reality um, we are not born in a vacuum we are products of nature and nature is much bigger than us so to speak of the impersonal to me is is not an appeal to the supernatural it's an appeal to nature. Uh, you know, I am a member of a little species that has evolved over 4 billion years on a rock hurtling around space. And it's preposterous to think that um, I am somehow separate from all that, that, uh, that I am my own agency, that the little Bernardo Castro uh, is, is an agent separate from the rest of nature, uh, which is unfortunately how we tend to think of ourselves. And, and, the process I described is a sort of a coming to terms with the fact that that is not so. Um, scientifically, we have never found the ego as an agency. Uh, the ego is a narrative. It, it, it's just not there. Uh, it's a story that uh, so a part of nature tells itself and then believes in. But while it's doing that, uh, the rest of nature is operating through you. You know, uh, the process I described Imagine an apple tree. I happen to have an apple tree, and, and it blossoms very heavily uh, in the spring. And imagine, imagine one of those little flowers, one of those, those little blossoms, thinking that its life is about it. It would be preposterous. And we know it's not about it. That blossom is going to go. It's going to die. And thanks to that death, there will be an apple there that will be eaten by somebody else. And those seeds will be dispersed. And there will be another apple tree. And all of this is beyond the comprehension of the little blossom. So if the little blossom thinks that its life is about it, it's missing out on the whole game. It's missing out on the whole thing. Because it cannot wrap its head around what is actually going on. So what I described to you is my coming to terms with it. That I cannot wrap my head around what nature is doing. And that the only healthy attitude to life is to acknowledge this. Um, and take a step back and let the show unfold. Knowing that you cannot understand the whole thing. But it, it, it has a mind of its own. It has an impetus of its own. And the only role you have is to, to preserve the tool, you. If you die, nature cannot operate through you. So you have to preserve the tool. Uh, and you have to have moral oversight because I don't think nature has um, a, how to say, a, a nature is morally neutral. And, mm -hmm. uh, and that's, that's not a bad thing, but it, it needs oversight. Otherwise, you will be, you know, Hitler didn't have moral oversight over the impersonal tendencies that flew through him, which were immensely powerful, allowed him to mobilize an entire nation. Uh, and um, that was his great mistake. And, uh, to speak, uh, uh, to use a term that philosophers have, have used ever since Socrates, um, if you don't have moral oversight over your daimon, your daimon can run amok. And if it runs amok, it can be for great good, but it can also be for great evil. So you need to steer that force. Um, you know, you cannot control the storm. It's a force of nature. But you can try to steer its direction to prevent harm and, and, and try to do some good. And uh, some fail to do that. Um, and I try not to. <laughs> so there's an uh, interesting uh, concept that comes out of a number of spiritual traditions that resonates with this, which is the function of conscience. 
And so what you describe as this kind of moral oversight, um, what I understand from you is that it's more akin to what I would call conscience in the sense that we often think of in conventional terminology, often morality is confused with uh, following rules and having a certain kind of uh, human-based behavior pattern, whereas conscience is a more immediate, um, uh, direct intuition of what is useful in the moment, maybe what is good in the moment, but good is a, a tricky word, but conscience is more uh, operates more as an intuitive force. And it seems like that's what you're describing as this uh, uh, in the terms of moral oversight. Yeah, I think so. I think if you need to follow a moral book, then you haven't mature enough. You're not self-reflective enough to know where, where that comes from and why the, the rules are where they are. And the rules can be wrong. They have changed over geographies, over time, you know, uh, uh, over populations. Um, the reason I think moral oversight is impossible is that uh, y- you guys know I'm an idealist. I think the foundational level of nature is mental, not your mind, not my mind, but uh, there is a mind out there that presents itself to us as what we call the physical universe. Um, I don't think that mind of nature in and of itself is intrinsically self-reflective. Uh, I don't think it is. I think it is spontaneous. It's instinctive. It's a natural mind. Self-reflection is a higher level mental capability that we have evolved at great cost over 4 billion years because it uh, self-reflection uh, gives you an advantage um, in an ecosystem. Uh, it allows you to think about your own thoughts, to ponder your own emotions, to plan, to deliberate, to coordinate activities, sometimes to subsume yourself in a group, sometimes to do precisely the opposite, depending on what's more favorable, to fitness, to survival. So it's something we acquired as living creatures. It's not something that is there from the beginning in the mind of nature, which means that uh, we have a capability that the mind of nature doesn't have, and it's then, I believe, our responsibility to apply that capability, to apply that moral oversight over the the spontaneous tendencies of the mind of nature, um, we, we cannot win over the mind of nature. It's 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 like a drop of water trying to win over a wave in Nazare in Portugal, the largest waves in the world. Um, but uh, you can steer that process when it's beginning. You can negotiate with it, even. And I think that is our natural fundamental responsibility to apply our self-reflection uh, to, con- to, to, to steer somehow these impersonal forces that, uh, that flow through us. Well, uh, let's get into how it is that you came to write the books that uh, the books of yours that we, that we've been reading, because uh, you're, you've just uh, said that it was a period of years over which you, as as you put it, came to terms with this realization that the egoic narrative that you were um, instantiating as you moved through your life, you 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 came to see the uh, perhaps shallowness of it, at least. Um, so, how did that end up driving you or taking you um, in response to? to the other situations that you, you were experiencing, how did that take you to, towards writing the sort of uh, 
articles and books that you have um, become well-known for. That's the thing. Before that, I would be able to tell you a nice story justifying every choice I had made in life. After that, there is no such a thing. After that, there is an impulse. Um, mm -hmm. If passes your moral oversight, you let it happen, and you don't really have a narrative in your own mind explaining to yourself why you're doing this or why you're not doing that. You don't know. That's the difficulty Mm -hmm. um, because it, it gives the ego a sense of not being in control. It doesn't know why it, whatever is happening is happening. Um, the, the seed of that um, had happened earlier in my life. Uh, my first doctorate was in computer engineering, and um, I had worked with AI. And of course, when you are in your 20s and you're working with artificial intelligence, you ask yourself, you know, I just created a computer that, uh, that is intelligent. What does it take to make it conscious as well? What does it make to have experience accompany the data processing in this intelligent computer, just like experience seems to accompany the data processing in my brain? Um, but if you think about that deeply for a little while, you realize that uh, whatever you do to change your computer, you're only changing function and structure, none of which has anything to do with awareness, with consciousness. Consciousness is incommensurable, conceptually speaking, with structure and function, because you can create any structure and any function without having any more or any less reason to think that it's conscious. Uh, and I, that then um, led to the realization that there was something in my understanding of what nature is that was wrong, because it was leading to this internal contradiction. It was leading to a question that didn't have an answer. So clearly, I had taken a wrong turn somewhere in my line of thinking, and I needed to retrace my steps. Um, but, you know, with the pressures of career and, you know, academia, um, I didn't work on that for, for several years after that seminal realization. Um, but around 2007, 2008, right at the same time as this transition was happening, um, at the same time that I was dying, <laughs> uh, that, what I thought I was, was dying, um, that, that question returned in full force and I was compelled to address it head on to at least give myself uh, a tenable worldview because human beings cannot live in a vacuum of worldview. We need a narrative in terms of which to relate to reality around us. Um, and so that's what I started doing. I, retrace my steps back to a point where I thought here I took a wrong turn and that point was the assumption that consciousness is something that is created it's a secondary thing that arises from a certain material arrangement that was the wrong turn it was an assumption that led to an internal contradiction so as a naturalist could I recreate my naturalist worldview without making that assumption and um, it happened very quickly um, and then I felt compelled to write it down. First, I thought I'm writing it down for me as a record, so I don't forget. Uh, but once it was written, I felt compelled to submit it somewhere and see what happened. And the rest is history. So, <clears throat> so if I look at a number of your books and essays, there's a, I think you've just described it, there's a foundational intuition or realization that you describe and <clears throat> it seems like a small thing to say in words and yet uh, i think as you describe it's it's like uh 
the lever against which the whole universe moves, which is that the primary fact that we have or the starting point for any inquiry is the fact of our subjective experience or the fact of our awareness. And that in particular, the piece of that that I think is most shocking to an ordinary uh, person growing up in uh, the materialist West is that a materialist worldview is a abstraction. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a conclusion that's drawn out of this fact. And as such, a claim of materialism is a metaphysical claim and not a uh, experiential or factual claim. So let's, let's start with that, that foundational point, because I think most everything else kind of flows from that. Materialism is definitely a metaphysics. Metaphysics means <clears throat> meta, that which is behind, and physics, uh, the behavior of nature as perceived by us. Um, so metaphysics is the study of being, the study of what is, while science is the study of the behavior of nature. That's what we find out in science, what, what nature does, how nature behaves. Materialism is a claim about what nature is. So it's not a scientific claim. It's a metaphysical claim. It's about the nature of that which behaves. And the claim is that uh, the physical world is different and outside of mind, that uh, physicality is of a, is a different category, diff different ontological substrate than mind. That's the first claim. And um, this, this non-mental stuff can be exhaustively described through numbers. So if you tell how many kilos it weighs, uh, how many, what's the speed in kilometers per hour, and if, if you give a list of numbers that is long enough, you will have said everything there is to say about this physical stuff that is non-mental. And the third claim is that mind somehow arises from it, although nobody has <coughs> ever managed to explain, even in principle, how that could be possible. Because there is no way to deduce the qualities of experience from the parameters of physical arrangements. No way, not even in principle. It's, it's an incoherent thing to even try to do. That's the so-called hard problem of consciousness yeah. in analytic philosophy. Um, so yes, materialism is a theory. It's not an empirical given because all we have is the experience of colors, of sounds, of flavors. And these are, this is all mental stuff. Um, um, matter or physicality as something that isn't mental is an abstraction of our mind. It's not something accessible to our mind because it's supposed to be non-mental and whatever our minds touch is mental already. And it turns out, if you look carefully into it, it is a self-contradictory claim. Um, it doesn't have explanatory power because it fails to explain experience, which is ultimately all we have. Um, it's empirically inadequate because it doesn't make sense of the latest laboratory, well, the latest laboratory results coming from foundations of physics for the last 50 years, almost. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's a definitely wrong worldview. Materialism is untenable. Uh, the only thing it has going for it is cultural momentum. Uh, a lot of people who pronounce themselves to be materialists don't even know what materialism actually is. They don't understand the implications of materialism. They think that materialism says that the world of colors and sounds is out there. Yeah. No, materialism says that the colors and sounds are produced in your head, inside your brain, and what is out there has no color, no sound. It's pure abstraction. People don't understand this. And um, they also don't understand what were the original motivators for materialism 
which were sociopolitical and psychological. They had nothing to do with reason and evidence. So no, materialism is it, it, it's completely untenable. It's a, uh, I mean, your arguments to me are, are very clear about that, and yet there seems to be this resistance in the uh, larger scientific community. I mean, I think maybe you could argue there's a little bit of a shift of that happening, but it still seems pretty robust that most people, most scientists, uh, um, start from a materialist point of view, and they don't even. It's not even questioned that. Uh, um, that the material, the material narrative is a is just that a narrative, and it that that's taken as a ground of reality, and I I don't quite understand why that's so persistent. I mean, maybe as you say that it's just got, kind of gotten uh, uh, inscribed in our cultural mind so so <clears throat> fully that uh, we don't question it, but. You know, even even I think in your work, you probably receive lots of uh, critiques from people who are who who are arguing or, or fighting against that uh, that issue. Well, it, it's changing very quickly. Um, nobody today is willing to defend materialism, defend physicalism explicitly in a debate. Um, that would be easy to find twenty years ago. Today, you cannot find. Uh, I have had many debates with people who have defended materialism for a lifetime. And they start the debate by saying, well, I am an agnostic. <laughs> and I'm like, well, okay, after 50 years, you, you are an agnostic. Um, you cannot find people willing to defend materialism today. Because the, if you know a thing or two about the debate, you know that you are in an impossible position and your opponent is going to wash the floor with you. Um, so they are all agnostic now. Um, now, why in the population at large amongst non-philosophers or amongst scientists who are who have no understanding of philosophy and perhaps little understanding of the limitations of the scientific method and think materialism is a scientific conclusion, which is preposterous, um, why do they still seem to endorse it? I think it's a psychological phenomenon called uh, stigmergy. It's not a conspiracy. It's a stigmergy. It's from the bottom up. If you are used to seeing cues, picking up cues from your environment that tell you that a materialist attitude gives you better status, gives you, gives you respect and a higher chance at promotion, you will emulate that, even if you don't really know what materialism is. And you will emulate that so well that you will convince yourself that, uh, that, you, that you are that, you are, you are a materialist, even though you don't really understand any of the crucial nuances and subtleties uh, of the discussion. Um, culture does this. Culture is a sort of a, uh, um, it is the framework of stigmergy. It's the sum total of the cues that lead people to think they believe what they think they believe. Um, and that's been on, going on for a long time. It, it didn't start like that in the beginning in the European Enlightenment in the, in the 18th century, even. Um, the people who promoted materialism in the very beginning were aware that it didn't work. Um, uh, uh, Diderot, uh, Denis Diderot, one of the authors of La Encyclopédie, the sort of founding document of the Enlightenment, he's on record saying, well, we know materialism doesn't work, but we need it to fight against the church. 
Mm. And and that was a legitimate fight because, you know, Bruno had been burned at the stake for doing science. Uh, and, and the church was very powerful and science was, you know, just beginning. Um, so it, it was a sort of sociopolitical uh, move to separate matter from spirit, to separate physics from psyche um, in order to create space for scientists without the church you know, bearing down on them and burning them at the stake. And that probably sounded innocent enough to the church. Like these guys are operating outside psyche, outside mind. They think there is a world of abstraction outside the mental. What, what idiots? Yeah, okay, let them do their stuff. They are harmless enough. It worked, thus. They lived to tell their story. Um, but of course, uh, the, the whole thing became distorted, in, especially in the 19th century, when people truly began to believe um, in materialism because it gave, you know, the, the nascent bourgeois intellectual elite uh, a handle to become even more powerful than the clergy, um, not only to survive, but to take over. <laughs> and that that's very mm -hmm. tempting. Um, and it ha had an enormous psychological um, gain, which is if you believe in materialism, then you believe that when you're dead, your consciousness is gone. And therefore, the greatest fear of mankind is off the table. Because what has been the greatest fear of mankind throughout our history? It's the fear of what we will experience after we die. The great unknown. In, in Christian mythology, that is codified in the figure of hell. Are we going to go to hell? Or are we going to go to heaven? And entire societies could be controlled on the basis of that fear. And that's what the church um, did for centuries. Uh, in the West, but if you were if you are dead when you're dead and there is nobody there to experience that fear is off the table. The payoff psychologically has been enormous. Of course, it came with a price, which was the loss of meaning. And Nietzsche was the first one to see this. Nietzsche saw that in the 1870s. Uh, he was prescient. You know, he saw that 50 years before everybody else. Um, but. Um, that realization was rare enough. Only the Nietzsche's of this life saw that early enough to understand that the trade-off actually was not a very good one, that the price was as high as the benefit. But since so few people saw it, uh, we embarked full on on that in the early 20th century that has led to logical positivism. Later on in the 50s and 60s, it has led to behaviorism. All of these yeah. worldviews that eliminate mind and therefore eliminate moral responsibility, eliminate the perspective of suffering after you die, eliminate the vertigo of eternity. All that stuff was gone. <gasps> wow, what a breath of fresh air. But now we are paying the price with the meaning crisis. Yeah, um, and and, and I, I just want to throw in that the the other thing about this narrative is it seemed to in the late 19th century and 20th century deliver miracles for the people. I mean, we had technology, we had uh, light bulbs, telephones, electricity, um, automobiles and things like that, that were coming from the people who were the high priests of this uh, uh, system of knowledge. And, you know, when you deliver uh, miracles for the people, that's a very compelling uh, uh, story. The association between materialism and technology is is uh, is by chance, or it's a psychological association. But there is nothing 
fundamental about it. That it, it's not materialism that delivered technology. To do technology, you need to know how nature behaves. You don't need to know what nature is. So I, I, even if we had adopted, if we had continued with German idealism, which was the mainstream worldview throughout the first half of the 19th century with Hegel and the Weimar Circle, you know, Fichte and, and, and all those good folks that dominated uh, the West uh, and that changed in the second half of the 19th century. Had that not changed, we would still have developed technology because uh, let me give you a, a, um, an analogy. If you have children, your five-year-old kid knows how to play computer games. Actually, a five-year-old kid can be a world champion playing a computer game. Does that mean that your five-year-old kid knows what a computer game actually is? All the intricacies of the electronics hardware and the software that goes into it. No, the five-year-old kid has no idea of that. But he can still play and win because he has a convenient fiction in terms of which to relate the game. It relate to the game. And it goes as such. There is a little man in the screen. I am that little man in the screen. If I shoot the other little man, I score points. If I get shot, I die. And if I touch a wall here or there, I die too. Is this true? No. No element of this is true. There is no little man in the screen. You are not in the screen. You're not shooting or getting shot. It's all untrue. But it is functional. Because things unfold in the game as if that convenient fiction were true. And that's why it's convenient. And that's why you can win the game. Technology is exactly the same thing. We don't need to know what nature is. We only need to know what will happen if we do this and what will happen if we do that, just like the five-year-old kid. All we need is a convenient fiction in terms of which to relate to nature. And we can develop technology, just like the kid can be a world champion. Technology can be developed without any metaphysical insight whatsoever. You just run an experiment. You see what nature does. In other words, how it behaves. You catalog that behavior. You wrap a predictive convenient fiction around it that allows you to predict what will happen if you do this or do that. And presto, you have technology and it all works and it's all great. And we are still ignorant of what's going on. So no, technology is not a gift from materialism. Technology is a gift of science, and science is not metaphysical. Science is metaphysically, metaphysics neutral. It's a common misunderstanding that technology is a gift of materialism. It is not. It just happened to unfold at, at a time when materialism uh, had a sort of a psychological upper hand in our culture. So, so it would be fair to say the materialists uh, claim credit for it, but uh, at it, it is not a necessary connection. It's unjustified. Now, yeah. you may be a technologist and a materialist, and many are. I am not. I'm a technologist. I know I now build one computer a year to keep my mind clear. Uh, um, but uh, the fact that you're good in one thing doesn't mean that you understand everything, all the implications of what you're doing. And there are many technologists that are horrendous, horrendously stupid when it comes to philosophy. It's a very common thing. Um, uh, strictly speaking, and I can say this with categorical certainty, uh, technology is not a product of any metaphysics, certainly not of materialism. Uh, under uh, a world in which idealism prevailed, technology would also be developed, and it has, because idealism prevailed in the early days of the Industrial Revolution. There were many inventions done 
uh, by societies in which idealism prevailed. The fact that it changed later in the 19th century doesn't eliminate railways, <laughs> steam engines, and, and all the stuff we did before materialism was the reigning worldview. Yeah. So, so you mentioned before we went down this uh, uh, path of technology versus materialism, uh, you used a phrase that I, I want to go back to, which is crisis of meaning. Because although it's not the case that um, metaphysics will uh, affect technology, one's worldview certainly uh, affects your sense of meaning and your sense of your sort of interior sense. And you, you speak about that in uh, your book, More Than Allegory, quite a bit, that different worldviews have consequences in our interior life. And, and you use, when you describe a materialistic worldview, for instance, you use the term deprived. It's deprived of something. So maybe let, let's talk about that a little bit in terms of what what is the cost? What is the uh, 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 what is the impact for us as individuals to have a particular worldview versus another worldview? A worldview is like a little operating system running at the bottom level of your mind. It's like Windows or macOS or or Linux. <laughs> you know, it's an operating system. It's always there. It underlies everything and it informs your emotional <laughs> inner life because. Um, a worldview, when it's deeply internalized, it's running beyond the reach of your critical thinking. In other words, um, it escapes your ability to be critical. It, it, it comes unquestioned to you. It, it, it's a process that runs without question. There is no oversight. There is no criticism. Um, in other words, it has you by the balls to speak crass English. Um, so depending on that operating system that you are running, your emotional inner life will be colored one way or another. Um, and, and, and that can completely change your life or it can completely change the way you experience your life. It can completely change your sense of meaning, your sense of purpose, your sense of your life being worth anything. Um, it changes how you perceive specific events as they unfold, whether they are good or bad, meaningless or for nothing. And it can therefore make you exult, uh, have an exultant life or have you an, or have a completely depressive life without any external factor changing. So it's very important that we become aware of this, this narrative running at a deep layer in our minds that is actually informing our lives at all times. And if that narrative is a depriving narrative that sort of eliminates meaning from life, we will fall into depression and it, and it will be very difficult to see where that is actually coming from. We will blame the world, we will blame the culture, we will blame the doctor, we will blame our past, we will blame our parents. The one thing we will not blame is the thing that is actually responsible for it, which is what operating system are you running? What's your worldview? What are the axioms, the key assumptions you're making about the unfolding of reality that are leading you to be in, in this state you are? So we, we carry tremendous responsibility for that. You, you mentioned, uh, again, in uh, More Than Allegory, that um, there's a couple of interesting points here. One, one is that allegory, the myths that we hold, the operating system as, we're, as you describe it now, 
has an impact on our the unfolding of our emotional responsiveness to life. And you advocate in some ways um, that it's better to have a affirming positive uh, myth that, and you live with that and you just go to that and you, you uh, cite some myths from indigenous cultures and from uh, the uh, uh, Vedantic world and things like that, that kind of underscore here are, here are myths that actually have something are closer to reality than let's say the materialist myth. Um, it's just a matter of switching the myth, uh, you know, because you describe a very, you know, a process of essentially of dying to one myth and awakening to another myth. How do we do that? How, how do people uh, uh, change the operating system? The honest answer is, uh, I don't know. These processes are are powerful. They, they tend to happen to us. It's not something that, you know, you have a key and you turn a key in a, in a drawer somewhere and open a new drawer and, ah, here's my new myth. It, it doesn't work like this, at least not for me, not in my experience. Um, you have to experience uh, spontaneously the dysfunctionality of your current worldview before a new one comes to to take its place and i don't know whether i have had explicit control over any of that it, it, it feels more like that whole thing happened to me and i gave words to it afterwards um, i think the importance of myth because in our culture we associate the word myth with falsity uh, with a grandmother's tale that is untrue and um and that's already the first limiting layer of myth-making we have. The important thing to realize is that um, um, we are monkeys running around a rock uh, hurtling through space. Um, we have been around for about 200,000 years, which is not even yesterday. It's the blink of an eye ago. And we have had an intellect for about 30,000 years. An intellect is our ability to, to think symbolically or conceptually. We have evidence for it going back to 30,000 years, maybe 50, but not before that. In other words, it's not even a blink of an eye ago. The intellect is just born. It has just happened. To think that we can have a literally true conceptual narrative about nature that encompasses everything that is salient for our emotional inner life is absolutely preposterous and irrational. There are a great many things of great relevance for us in nature that we cannot conceptualize in any literally correct way. We just don't have the cognitive apparatus for this because our cognitive apparatus was born not even yesterday, but just now. If you understand that, then you realize that you have to have another way to relate to nature that is complementary to the intellect, and that's a sort of a spontaneous, intuitive way. That's why I said all of this seems to happen spontaneously, because it's an intuitive flow. It's not a sort of a literally true narrative about how do I correct my worldview. If you accept this intellectually, in other words, if the intellect accepts its own limitations and you create emotional space for sort of the root system of your being, which is directly connected to nature, to begin to inform your inner life intuitively, uh, then you can have a, a, a healthy myth again, because you grant space and validity to some of the psychic functions that nature has endowed you with 
but which your intellect had uh, invalidated before by decreeing that uh, they are completely unreliable. And finding that balance is is critical and very difficult. I I don't know whether I I found that balance yet myself. I'm certainly closer to it than I was uh, several years ago. And uh, and that opens space for a resurgence of meaning, because then you realize that materialism. Um, <laughs> one, even intellectually, it doesn't work. Intellectually, it's self-contradictory. Um, but if you if you realize this, space will automatically be created in your inner life for something else to play the role of a worldview, and and that can mean a tremendous reinjection of meaning and vali- and validation uh, to life. So this <clears throat> sounds like your project, actually, because. Um, you just mentioned earlier in the conversation that um, the uh, the folks who 50 years ago would have been critics of the position that you're taking um, are now self-describing as agnostics. In other words, um, you you might project onto them that they are, in fact, acknowledging a mystery that they previously would not have acknowledged and that's um i suspect part of part of uh, um the direction that you would wish to have them take and it's not a uh, uh these these uh, you know stuart's question about about changing worldview is is in fact the heart of the matter in in many ways it seems to me because how that happens it strikes me um Sometimes is it's useful to use the metaphor you have of, a, of an operating system, a computer operating system. But it, but, but you yourself have just said that that in fact you don't really know, and probably no one really knows how this how this all works. So um, so there are lots of ways in which people quote, change their minds, unquote. And, and, and I'd like you to uh, elaborate on that, if you will. If we look back in history, we have always been changing our worldview. Yeah. It's always been a process of flow. It has never really settled anywhere. Because our lives are so short, we have the impression that it's settled. But from a historical perspective, it, it never is. There was a time many thousands of years ago when our worldview was matriarchal, profoundly matriarchal. And then the Jews exiled in Babylon two and a half thousand years ago came up with a very patriarchal worldview. And and it has been always changing across time, across geographies. Um, Right now, it's no exception. It's just because our lives are so short that we think, oh, now we got it right. But Every generation before us also thought, now we've gotten it right. It's just a matter of filling in the details. And now it completely changed again. It's no exception now. And this process of change is much bigger than, than our little you know, conceptual narratives about how to have it happen. I don't think we make it happen. I think we are participants in a much bigger process. Uh, but the best elaboration on this, and I, hesit- I hesitate saying this because I abhor the way he writes, and I abhor the fact that uh, he doesn't provide any arguments to tell you why to believe him. He just says, this is how it is. And that's Hegel. 
And Hegel's philosophy of history, I intuitively sense as the best account of this process. It's the dialectical process. There is something happening in the mind of humanity at a, at a, at a level that for us as individuals is, is beyond our ability to introspect. It's, it's a very much lower level than we can introspect into. It's a very impersonal or transpersonal level. But at that level, the undercurrents are enormous and massive and, and, and they are undergoing this dialectical process, uh, in which worldviews are constantly being re-examined and every stone in the field is being turned and having, uh, being looked at underneath to see, you know, is there something here or not? If not, let's move, let's move on to the next stone and let's turn that stone over as well. But the agent that is doing this is not a personal agent. It's a, it's a, it, it, it's a, a dynamic in the collective human psyche uh, undergoing this dialectical process. And it's no exception now. Uh, I think the process is inevitable um, over the course of 20 years. I, I, so, so much has changed. Yeah. Um, the people now are, you know, even hardcore academics, very famous names, their openness to this stuff would have been um, implausible to say the least 20 years ago uh, there there is a shift in sort of the collect, collective psyche uh, even of the western mind uh, which is now sort of dominates the world there is there has been a clear shift um, in our ability to contemplate certain lines of argument and certain lines of evidence from a slightly different perspective a slight change in the angle uh, from which we sort of contemplate things. Uh, Owen Barfield wrote about that. This this slight shift in perspective and how much it can unveil, and this is clearly happening uh, m- more than I can even tell you because uh, a lot of it is still discussed in private groups under virtual NDAs because you no know, people are concerned of. Not only of how they will will be perceived, but uh, they are legitimately concerned that um, they may be wrong because it's such a shift for them. So they, they carry a lot of uncertainty with that. It's irresistible; they go along with it. But you know the the, the Freudian technology, Freudian terminology, uh, uh, the the super ego is monitoring this thing and saying, "Well, you no, know, you may regret all this. You may be completely wrong." Uh, but th- this stuff is happening, and 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 it's very clear, and it's it's not it's not even subtle. <laughs> well, that it's interesting because uh, what what it's what it was sounding like earlier that you were describing was a process of going from certainty to certainty. Um, but what you've just said suggests, uh, to my mind at least, that that the uncertainty itself is a place, is a position in your language, is in a certain sense, can be a a worldview. And that is, um, I mean, you can look at uh, spiritual uh, um, traditions from uh, Asia uh, that would explicitly make that that claim. So, so discuss that, if you will, for a moment, this, 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 um, rather than certainty to certainty, um, with uncertainty being a, a transitional stage, what, 
about accepting, as you yourself describe yourself as having done, accepting uncertainty as, I guess, entailed within a worldview. Yeah. So to speak absolutely first, before I speak relative to culture, uh, it's preposterous for monkeys that have been running around with an intellect for 30,000 years only to be certain, positively certain about what nature is. It's, it's, it's just preposterous. It's ridiculous. It's like the mole in your garden thinking that uh, he, he solved grand unification theory in quantum field uh, uh, theory. Um, so let's abandon that. Can we be certain that we've gotten it right? No. Can we be certain about our past mistakes? Yes. When you make a mistake that um, is given by internal contradictions, you can be certain that that is a mistake. You can be certain about what is wrong. Not yeah. all that is wrong, otherwise you would know <laughs> what's right, but you can be certain about many things that are wrong. And that's what constitutes progress, is to unveil our mistakes and move away from them and try again. That's progress. It's not because we found, found what's true, but because we have progressively eliminated a number of our mistakes over time. Now, relatively speaking, the, the psychology of this whole thing is such that people can derive from culture a sense of certainty about what is the case. Where does that certainty come from? We know it's absurd in absolute terms. Monkeys cannot be certain. So wh where does that psychological feeling of certainty comes from? It comes from peer support. When everybody around you says that they believe the same thing you, you do, you think, oh, we, and then I, I feel certain about it. When information would uh, sort of new information would percolate through a society and debate would percolate through a society fairly slowly, like it has been the case for centuries, um, you do not have time in your lifetime to experience the uncertainty that that fluid cultural dynamics leads you to, because now you don't have permanent peer support. Now your peers are changing their minds too. So your certainty evaporates. Now this didn't happen before because you would be dead before that happened. Okay. Um, but now not only do we live longer, which is a minor factor, the big factor is that with the internet and information communication technology, the debate and the transfer of information, new insights, new evidence, new arguments, this stuff is happening so quickly that you lose that false sense of peer conveyed certainty several times in one lifetime. And psychologically, this can be very upsetting until we get used to it. And I think we are beginning, this is beginning. This is a 21st century thing. Um, we are seeing the first stages of a fundamentally new dynamics uh, uh, in human perspective in which the sense of certainty derived from peer reinforcement is, is diluting and we will have to find a new way to relate to truth. And that new way is to not be certain about what is true. That new way is to feel a sense of meaning and progress from correcting our own past mistakes. So 
Uh, and it's uh, a, it, th- this is crucial. It's a very important point. It's not about finding the truth. Forget about it. We are monkeys. It's about successfully seeing through our past mistakes and trying again, taking a step forward. And we don't know when we are going to arrive or if we are ever going to arrive at the destination. But that's not important. What is important is that we don't get stuck with our mistakes forever. If we are able psychologically and intellectually to see through our mistakes and try to correct them and give it another try, life will be full of meaning again. And and, uh, we may improve uh, the chaos of our situation. So, so I, this, this is a really interesting point, and it, there's a long thread I'll try to unravel here that goes from some of the themes that you've alluded to when you speak about allegory, um, and it ties into a, um, a concept that we know from our own work in the, uh, uh, the Gurdjieff Fourth Way system, which is the... There's, it's the understanding of a, a complete functioning of our mentation or our mental processes needs to include both an intellectual component and an emotional component. And when the emotional component <clears throat> withers away, we don't have a sense of meaning and we have a sense of kind of a desperation or a deprived experience. So materialism certainly does that. But as you described, uh, uh, in one, in some of your writing, so does fundamentalism. So fundamentalism is a form of of insistent belief, and in and whatever the claims, it can be uh, uh, spiritual claims, claims about God, claims about our purpose. But when they're located in this kind of absolutist uh, fundamentalist way, it's as deprived as the materialist narrative because there's not really room for this. Uh, uh, and hate uh, openness that you're describing as a sense of meaning, or you also use the term of rootedness. You know, like where when when we are rooted to our true nature, something arises in us that gives us a sense of meaning. And, it's very and, difficult to be to be rooted in our society these days. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, and this is a, and and so the thread I want to tie with this is that this transformation you're describing in uh, some of the. Uh, academic communities of being willing to hold a space of uncertainty. Uh, We also have a a larger culture that is taking literalism and the massive information available on the internet and essentially driving itself crazy because there isn't this rootedness or this connectedness to something real or natural in our state of being and I'm wondering, I, I, I agree it's wonderful that there are uh, scientists who are starting to open up and take steps away from materialism, and we'll get into that in a moment. But how do we, how do we awaken meaning uh, in the larger community? Is it a matter of a shared narrative? Uh, it's like the narrative has to have enough space to allow something deeper within to connect again. And we're so disconnected. I don't know whether I can give you any recipes. Uh, um, no recipes have ever worked for me. <laughs> um, um, but I think we can make a, a step forward if we understand the dynamics of what we've been doing. You know, un- understanding 
what's happening is halfway to improving it. And so I don't have a recipe for improving it, but maybe I can contribute something to understanding what's happening. Fundamentalism is a expression of desperate insecurity. When you're desperately insecure within about what you actually believe and how you stand in the world, uh, you become a fundamentalist because you need to change the world around you to, to sort of give you a sense of certainty. You impose peer reinforcement. Um, and and, and it, this is done not only by people, by, but by organizations. One of the greatest catastrophes imposed in humankind by the West uh, have been um, the, the Jesuit-driven forced conversions of the new worlds. Uh, in the Americas and in, in Australia, Australasia, um, that's an expression of profound insecurity, which expresses itself as fundamentalism. Now, let's dig one layer deeper. What is the psychology at play here? Um, we know that it's a phenomenon in psychology called fluid compensation. What is fluid compensation? Where is, where is this coming from? We are meaning-seeking entities and agents. We need meaning. Viktor Frankl wrote extensively about this uh, previous century, that it's, it's not Nietzsche's will to power, it's not Freud's will to pleasure, it's the will to meaning. Uh, we can bear anything if we, if, we, if, if we discern the meaning in it, even great suffering we can bear. And that's what the life of Jesus uh, illustrates. It's encoded right there in Christian mythology. It's about the meaning of what you're doing. You will happily be crucified if you can discern the meaning of that. Uh, if we lose our relationship to meaning, if it's taken away from us by a cultural development, like the death of God in the late 19th century, we will fluid compensate. It, it, it's, a, it's a subconscious process. We have no control over it. We will desperately seek to find another source of meaning to compensate for the one we lost. Which one have we lost? We lost transcendent meaning, which was given to us by religious mythology. That's what we lost late in the 19th century. So we fluid compensated. What are the alternative sources of meaning when you lose transcendent meaning? There are a number. One of them is closure. Uh, even if life unfolded in a way that you hate, that you're really unhappy about, if at least you understand it and you get a sense of closure, you fluid compensate in that direction. Uh, you can also compensate for the loss of transcendent meaning by uh, being part of something bigger than yourself, like the great scientific enterprise. Now, you may be dead in 20 years, but your great work will survive as part of something that is bigger than you. We are always fluid compensating. And closure is a big one. So even when God's dead, we spend $10 billion at CERN in the LHC to find the Higgs boson, which we already knew for years existed, to get closure. Because even if materialism were true and the world is, has no meaning, at least we understood it down to the Higgs boson. That gives us closure. So to understand that we operate as a species 
along these lines of fluid compensation that we are always subconsciously trying to compensate for lack of meaning somewhere. And that this is what accounts for some of our worst behaviors. Understanding this, seeing through this is at least half the step, half a step towards improving our lives. Now, I don't have a recipe for the second half. <laughs> that's a, that's a more, uh, uh, challenging one, but, but, uh, Maybe this would be a good time to uh, at least speak to what we might we might call it a myth. It's a the, your your um, your larger uh, worldview. I, I guess it'd be fair to say, call it a metaphysics, but this is the uh, the picture that you describe in a number of your works, which is what does it mean to say that um, everything is mental? What does it mean to say, you know, what is, what is this mentality? And I, I know that um, uh, <clears throat> you cite in some of your books, acknowledging friendships with folks like Rupert Spira, who will, uh, you know, will point to this fundamental quality of being as this uh, awareness, the, fun- the, the function of awareness, which is common to all of us. That, that it's that I think you say in your book that it is, it is, what you experience, what I experience, what Rob experienced, what anyone experiences of this, when we look at it, it's the same. It's, 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 it's the substrate of all it is. Yeah. So the interesting question, uh, the challenge is, so how does this, um, how is it the case that this awareness uh, subdivides to effect what I think is the, the profoundest miracle that my, my egoic mind can conceive of, which is that I can have a, an experience of individual personal identity that relates to you as different and Rob is different. And I experience this difference of separation. That this happens in mind is an empirical fact. Um, it, you know, we, we don't need to set to sort of have a complete conceptual account of it to convince ourselves that this is plausible. We don't need that because it's beyond plausible. It happens. Even if we can't account for it conceptually, it happens. Um, it's called in psychiatry dissociation, um, in which one mind seemingly fragments itself into multiple seemingly separate centers of awareness. Now, we've known this clinically for well over 100 years, but there was always doubt that people might be faking this. It used to be called multiple personality disorder. Now we call it uh, dissociative identity disorder since since the DSM-5. But um, with the advent of neuroimaging at the turn of the century, we know now for a fact that dissociation happens. For instance, there was this study in 2015 in Germany. A woman had multiple dissoci- dissociated alters or personalities, a couple of which claimed to be blind, although the woman was not blind. And neuroscientists uh, sort of put her in, a, in an EEG cap to measure her brain activity. And uh, when the host personality was in control, the woman had normal brain activity in the visual cortex at the back of the brain. But when an alter that claimed to be blind took executive control, uh, brain activity in the visual cortex would disappear, even though the woman's eyes were open. Now, you can't fake that. That woman literally was blind when a blind alter was in control. Dissociation can literally blind you to what is right in front of your open eyes. If it can do that, 
obviously it can prevent me from reading your thoughts right now and it prevents me from knowing even what is in China, let alone, let alone what's going on in the galaxy of Andromeda. So I submit to you that uh, there is nature is a mind, um, not a mind like ours, not a self-reflective, deliberate mind, a very simple, spontaneous mind. And we are dissociative alters, dissociative personalities of that mind. And when you examine dissociation, it looks like a living body. That's what biology is. It's, it's the representation, the, the alter appearance of a dissociative process when we observe it from the outside. Um, and what we call the physical world is what the non-dissociated parts of the mind of nature look like when we observe it from across our own dissociative boundary. That, In my view, that's what's going on. And I, I don't have time to make a complete analytical argument for why this solves uh, all the problems we face today in philosophy. But the, that's the essence of the idea. So the idea is that everything is mental, but not, not in your personal mind alone, not in my personal mind alone. There is a real world outside of us, a world that we inhabit. But that world too, just like your thoughts and my thoughts, is mental. And that there can be mentation outside our own minds is trivial. I believe you have thoughts, although your thoughts are not in my mind. By the same token, I believe that nature at large is made of thoughts, but not my thoughts, not thoughts in my mind. And I observe those thoughts, they appear to me in the form of what I call the physical world. Because evolution has equipped us to cognitively represent what's outside us in the form of what we call physicality, since it is the most efficient and coded way to provide us information about our environment and have us survive. So one question I have is your, your use of language, uh, mind versus consciousness. Uh, and I'd, I'd like you to elaborate on, on, on why you use the word mind in the way that you just did. In, in our conversation, but in your written work as well. Um, in the Western philosophical tradition, the word mind has been used as a synonym of phenomenal consciousness. Uh, traditionally, uh, the word mind derives from the Greek psyche, uh, um, which is also a synonym for spirit, for instance. Um, that's why I use it. But I use the word mind not to imply a particular function of mind like thoughts uh, in non-duality people tend to use the word mind as a synonym for thinking uh, no, mind is also that which intuits mind is also that which feels in, in in the western tradition that's how we use the word mind so i use it in that sense uh, but uh, to make clear my meaning uh, i'm using the word mind as a synonym of phenomenal consciousness. In other words, as a synonym of experience, even very simple experience that does not have higher mental, higher level mental functions, such as deliberate thinking or planning or self-awareness or self-reflection. No, no, just pure experience. If there is something it is like to be you, then you are phenomenally conscious. And therefore, in my usage, you're minded. I don't equate mind to thought. I equate mind to awareness, phenomenal consciousness in general. So, so um, just just to be clear on that point, then uh, the phenomenal consciousness um, that this mind that you're describing, the larger mind, is can be approached with phenomenal consciousness without an object. Like it's it's pre it's pre object in that sense, right? It's it's it is 
how far back can you go to uh, touch this? I, you know, the, the word object is ambiguous in the sense it can have many meanings. If you mean by it an experience that is rooted on something outside of a mind, uh, then you need dissociation because dissociation is what creates the boundary in terms of which you can speak of an inside and an outside. Um, but if you are born in a sensory deprivation chamber, from the first moment you are born, and there is nothing to be perceived, nothing to see, nothing to hear. All you have are your own endogenous experiences, your feelings, your thoughts, your fantasies. Uh, are these objects? Perhaps not, but um, or perhaps yes. I don't know. Depending, it depends on the meaning of the word object. I think the mind of nature before life arose, in other words, before dissociation began, uh, only had endogenous experiences of the kind that this infant would have had if he or she were born in a sensory deprivation chamber. There's nothing coming from the outside. Experiences are arising spontaneously from the inside. That's all there was before the rise of life. Now, life, which is the image of dissociation, uh, is, the, is the cue for there being a boundary, a dissociative boundary that creates an outside and an inside. Now there is an external world from the point of view of yeah. the dissociated alters because they are bounded by the dissociative boundary. So how does that uh, boundary uh, form? Is it, I mean, do we have to just accept that as a, uh, a given? Or I, I know you've, you've described to some extent a process by which uh, at some point there's a self-reference or a, a redirection that... Uh, can happen in the in the endogenous experience where there there's just these phenomena that are arising and we don't really have a sense of self separate from them it's just an experiential component but at some point something happens <laughs> what is that what is that something uh, the, and that's I, a difficult question well, <laughs> and i understand this is a myth i mean i'm not i'm not i'm not going to okay. uh, hold you to this i just want to understand how you intuit this uh, process yeah i think the safest most conservative answer is the following everything that can happen in nature given enough time will happen each intrinsic potentiality of the natural world given enough time will express itself and dissociation clearly can happen because we see it happening so it was bound to happen at some time in, in this universal field of subjectivity. Therefore, life arose. Um, that's the most conservative answer. A uh, less conservative answer is to say, okay, what we call life is the extrinsic appearance of dissociation. So to explain how dissociation arose is to explain how life arose, abiogenesis, the origin of life. So we can import all of the science that has been made to try to make sense of abiogenesis, we can import that straight to philosophy by saying what science is talking about is the extrinsic appearance of the mental process, process of dissociation that when observed looks like what we call life or biology. Now, uh, the least conservative and least safe answer to your question is to explore it purely from a first-person perspective, from the perspective of the thing in itself as opposed to its appearance what is that mental process of dissociation what triggered it do we have clues what triggers dissociation in a person 
trauma is what triggers dissociation in a person. An experience that is very, very hard to integrate triggers dissociation. Could the mind of nature have had an endogenous experience that was very, very hard to integrate and therefore it split itself and therefore life arose? It's conceivable. It's conceivable that a realization, um, I, I, I hesitate using this words because it may suggest something supernatural while I'm a complete naturalist, but imagine you are a mind and you suddenly, suddenly come to the realization that you are all there is and all there ever will be. Sometimes we ourselves come to that realization. Um, I, I, I tend to call, I, I like to call it the, the vertigo of eternity. It's an experience that if you're like me, you recoil away from as fast as you possibly can. And you try to never touch, touch that again. It's a place in the mind I don't want to go. And, and why? Well, the hint is in the words I use for it. It's the vertigo of eternity. It's profoundly un uncomfortable. It's beyond uncomfortable. Now, I can imagine, and this is purely speculative, that if the mind of nature before the rise of dissociation, before the rise of life, experienced the vertigo of eternity, that would have been a trauma beyond human conception, beyond anything conceivable, uh, the, the ultimate trauma, the ultimate realization of loneliness. Uh, you are in solitary confinement for all eternity and there is absolutely nothing you can do about it because that is your nature wow if if that doesn't lead to dissociation <laughs> i don't know what does i don't want to i don't want i don't like to even sample those waters yeah. i don't like to put even my my little toe in it you know if you leave it up to me i will run away from it as fast as i can run <laughs> That's a yeah that that has a, that has has a feeling or a chill uh, associated with it, but uh, it's not uh, romantic. <laughs> but so the the other question I have around this, in that let us say this dissociation happens, then um, you use the term the creation of life. As soon as we have inside and outside, we have life. That that suggests that uh, life is a bigger thing in your worldview than the, the typical scientific biological understanding of life. In other words, we could speak about the life of a star or the life of a planet or a life of a galaxy, as well as the life of atoms or the life of cells or the life of human beings. And when I say life, I mean <clears throat> that which appears to us as biology, as metabolizing organisms. So I have a narrow, strict definition of what I mean by life. I don't use it as an analogy to existence or as a metaphor to limited existence or a state of existence. No, I mean biology, metabolism. I mean the thing that dies and decomposes. That That's what I mean by, by life. Yeah, I think the question is, uh, and <clears throat> you may, may or may not agree with this, uh, is can you ascribe that, that to, let's say, a star? Um, is a, a star a being that has a 
some, but well, it certainly has a metabolism and it, it certainly is born and eventually dies. Uh, what is the life of a star? Uh, we may not be able to conceive of it from our egoic points of view, but we could by analogy at least suggest that there may be something it's like to be a star. There is someone I respect very much who who speculates about it and takes the hypothesis seriously. That's uh, Rupert Sheldrake. Yeah. Um, we have to be careful with starting using a certain word rigorously and then begin using the same word analogically or metaphorically and, and not realize that we've made a, a change in, in what we mean by the word. Um, that can lead to very wrong conclusions. Um, if I use life as a synonym for metabolism, then the word is not applicable to the, quote, life of a star. A star does not metabolize. Now, there is a certain level of abstraction where you can find a similarity of form, an isomorphism between a star and the life of an organism in the sense that a star, a star comes into existence, burns its fuel, and then sort of collapses into a black hole or, 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 or a red dwarf or whatever. Uh, so it, it dies, so to say. And and there is a sense, that, a certain level of abstraction in which the dynamics of the electromagnetic fields in a star's corona uh, are similar to the patterns of electromagnetic fields in the human brain. But yes, there are these similarities of form, but we, we have to keep in mind that to find them, we have to take a great many steps of abstraction our, away from concrete reality. If we stick to concrete reality, a star is nothing like a living being. The temperature regimen of a star is, is orders of magnitude different from a human being. Uh, a star does not burn ATP, does not do protein transcription, protein folding. Uh, and, you know, a star does not do a cell division. It, it does, it's not made of cells. Uh, it, it's completely different. A star is a completely different thing from a living, breathing, living organism. Um, and yes, there are similarities of form, but we have to take a great many steps of abstraction away from concrete reality to find those. So I think I, I cannot categorically tell you that a star is not the outer appearance of a dissociative outer in the mind of nature because, well, I don't know for sure. But the important thing is not what we can categorically refute. There are a great many nonsensical things that I cannot categorically refute. I cannot categorically refute that there is a 19th century teapot in the orbit of Saturn right now. Because it could have been the case that aliens came to Earth and stole the teapot and went back to their to the Pleiades. And when they were in, in the neighborhood of Saturn, they dumped the teapot and the teapot got captured by the gravity field of Saturn. So I cannot refute that. But the question is not what I cannot refute. The question is, what do we have reasons to entertain seriously as a hypothesis? Do we have enough reasons to seriously entertain the hypothesis that a star can have private conscious in their life the way living creatures seem to have, I tend to think that we don't. Because, one, it doesn't metabolize. It's nothing like living beings. And living beings are the only instance that I know for sure are what private conscious in their life looks like from the outside. 
metabolizing organisms. A star is not at all a metabolizing organism, so it, you would need then to say that the same underlying process, a dissociative process, can look like two completely different things in nature. Metabolism on the one hand and a star on the other hand. The same underlying process. <clears throat> could it be the case? Strictly speaking, it could. But do we have reasons to think this might be the case? I don't think we have good reasons to think that. No. Um, I, I would stick to... Now, if you want to entertain this from a from a allegorical or mythical perspective, go with uh, Dante. Uh, Dante wrote uh, about um, the love that moves the sun and the other stars, and and this is a quote. So, what he's suggesting here is that a star is not what dissociation looks like. A star is what an outpouring of love looks like. Mm. That's his suggestion. You know, if I if I were pressed against a wall with a gun to my to my head, and people would say, "Okay, make a bet now. You have to choose one bit, one of the two. Either the star is what dissociation looks like, or the star is what an outpouring of love looks like. What do you choose? I would choose the latter. And if you say, "Well, a star can kill you if you bake under the sun too long, it can kill you. How can it be love? Well, love smothers. <laughs> love can kill you." <laughs> Well, don't I, am, am I mistaken in uh, thinking that I have the memory of reading in uh, the idea of the world uh, that um, the cosmos, the structure of the cosmos bears a resemblance to the structure of human uh, neurobiology? Was why, why then would you make this comparison uh, in the book? Oh, I think, uh, uh... There, I was not talking about dissociation. Uh, there, I was, talk uh, I was talking about um, whether the universe, um, its appearance corresponds in any way to the appearance of a mind. And the only example we have that we know for sure is the appearance of a mind is the brain. The brain is what your mental inner life looks like from the outside. I don't think it's what generates your mental inner life. I think it's what your mental inner life looks like from the outside. That we know. So if under idealism, everything is a great mind, then you would expect there to be some kind of similarity between, between what a little mind looks like, such as my brain, and what the big mind looks like. You would expect there to be some, some correspondence. Not functional because the brain is the image of a dissociative process. So you cannot expect the mind at large, the mind of nature, to look like a dissociative process because that's not what it is under idealism. It's precisely that what remains after parts of it become dissociated. But it's still a mind. So you would expect at some level to find a hint for it in the way the, the inanimate universe looks like. And lo and behold, there are uh, confounding similarities between um, the universe at its largest scales um, and mammalian brains from a uh, sort of a network topology perspective. So we are not talking about merely um, uh, um, a visual similarity. We are talking about quantified network topology parameters. So th this has been studied 
at length now by Franco Vazza and a number of others. And the similarities are there and they are confounding. But again, the claim is not that the mind of nature is a dissociative process like my mind, because that's not the claim. It's not what I'm saying. The claim is that if both are mental, then there should be some similarity at some level. But I think dissociation looks like metabolism. And if a star doesn't look like metabolism, then I think we don't have good reasons to contemplate the hypothesis that the star is dissociated. But it's definitely a part of a mind. And if you look at the universe at the largest scales and you look at the distribution of stars and galaxies and galaxy clusters, it does look like a giant brain. And that that's somewhat confounding if you're not an idealist because there is no good reason for it to be like that. It seems to be a literally cosmic coincidence that is vexing. Okay. <clears throat> but even cells, as you say, like... Uh being prop being metabolic entities uh you assert that the a cell has a a subjective experience it doesn't it may not be it's not like our uh consciousness in the sense that where we have self-reference and identity and a kind of a, an ongoing narrative but a cell has there's something that it's like to be a cell do you see well, if it's a, if you're talking about a single-celled organism like a paramecium or an amoeba, uh, then yes, I think there is something it is like to be an amoeba in and of itself, or there is something it is like to be a paramecium uh, in and of itself. But if we are talking about the cells of a multicellular organism like we are, yeah, then I do not think there is something it is like to be a single neuron in your brain. So, so this is an. Well, so let me let me just go with that for a second because this is an interesting. Um, and to get a little technical for a moment, you you've critiqued panpsychism on the grounds of what's called the combination problem, which is that if you assert that individual entities have consciousness, you don't really have a clear accounting of how multiple things can come together and to become uh, one. So, but I don't. I don't really hear the distinction uh, 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 conceptually in what you're describing because evolutionarily there were individual cells that began to come together. No, this so, has never happened. Okay, so the, the, so so then correct me on this. What how how because my my simple narrative of biology is that you have in, individual cells uh, arise and then uh, they group together and something happens where they become more of a entity. No. So, so, all right. How how would you account to that? So biologically, when separate cells come together, they form colonies, not multicellular organism organisms, like um, a Portuguese man of war. That's, that's a colony of cells. A coral reef is, is, is a colony. Um, there is only one instance in our biological history in which two cells came together and became one organism, and that's uh, mitochondria. The, the power plants within each cell of our body, mm-hmm. we have good reasons to believe they were once separate cells, and they got eaten up, but instead of being digested, they were incorporated into the cytoplasm and be, started to burn ATP and produce energy. Now, the, we would have a problem that would lead to a contradiction in what I'm saying. If multicellular organisms were born, 
by, say, a billion cells crawling together and building a human being. Then each cell would be a proper part of a human being. And, and then I would be tempted to say there is something it is like to be each one of those cells. And, and then we would have the combination problem. H how then is there something it is like to be the whole of me? Because I was once a trillion separate cells that crawled together to form me. So let me, let me, let me, let me just jump in here. There is an example of this uh, slime mold. Are you familiar with slime mold? Okay. Um, if a multicellular organism has been formed by mitosis, by what we call cell division, uh, then I don't think there is anything it is like to be each cell because those cells are not proper parts of the organism. They are internal differentiations of the organism. So the, before I get to slime mode, let me talk about uh, sure. a human being, because it's easier for me than to get a handle on how I will uh, get to your question. Uh, we were once a single-celled organism, each and every one of us. We were a zygote, a fertilized egg in the womb of our, the womb of our mothers a single-celled organism. How did we become a multicellular organism? Well, that single cell began to differentiate itself internally. It started to erect dividing walls in its cytoplasm in a process we call mitosis or cell division. Now, my argument to you is that uh, that's just that. It's inner differentiation, inner complexification. We are still the zygote. We never ceased to be that single cellular organism that we once were. It's just that the zygote is bigger and it has internal structure. Therefore, what we call the cells in our bodies, they are not parts. They are just uh, um, um, fractal differentiations of the original zygote, internal complexification. We are not made of parts. We are one thing. We are unitary, just like we were when we were that zygote. But the zygote created internal walls, complexified itself, created internal structure that we now refer to as cells because they are self-similar reflections of the original structure. They are fractal inner differentiations. Um, therefore, there's nothing it's like to be a cell of a multicellular organism because that cell is not a proper part. It has never been an independent thing. It's, an, it's just a subset of a internal pattern of the organism. It's the boundaries of a cell in, in my brain are nominal. It's something that we define epistemically. It's just for convenience. It's like looking at the red pixels in a painting and saying the red pixels are a thing. No, there is just the painting. We arbitrarily put boundaries to, to refer to, to parts of that thing that actually has no parts, to refer to segments of it as if they were parts. There are no neurons. There are no liver cells. There is one organism that is internally differentiated. And by convenience, we refer to segments of it as liver cells or neurons. But we were not assembled together by having our neurons and liver cells crawl together and pile up on one another until they form us. You see the point I'm trying yeah, to make? Yeah, I, I do. Now, slime mode. Uh, the question then is, 
is this, does this lime mold grow by mitosis, by internal cell division? If so, uh, then the same applies to, to it as it applies to human beings. If the mold grows by independent cells crawling together, like in a Portuguese man of war or a coral reef, uh, then you're not talking about a single organism, you're talking about a colony. And then there is something it is like to be each of the cells that form the colony. Okay, so so then it, by analogy, if we talk about a nation, that's a colony of uh, individual human beings, but yes. it's, it's not a single entity as a... Uh... Yes, we, we have to be careful about giving ontological reality to everything that we happen to have a name for. Mm-hmm. Because the structure, the ontological structure of reality does not need to be the structure of our language. Why would it be? So not everything we have a name for uh, is necessarily conscious or is necessarily a thing. There are no things uh, um, um, in the universe except for living organisms. Um, but but this would require another hour of our discussion. Uh, what we call objects uh, are arbitrary carvings out of the universe that we apply epistemically for our own convenience, and we create words for them. But the structure of reality is not necessarily the structure of our language. Why would everything we have a name for be a thing separate from its surrounding? That's absurd. And, and, and that's one of the problems of panpsychism. It, it, it falls into that trap, into projecting the structure of language towards the ontological structure of reality, which is obviously a logical fallacy. Hmm. It also, I mean, panpsychism is a, uh, a philosophy of, of, that describes that everything, you know, all material manifestation has some uh, residual consciousness, does seem to be a stepping stone that uh, many of your scientific colleagues are making in order to move from materialism to, uh, you know, uh, to idealism. It's a intermediary step in which uh, matter and uh, uh, the, the mental and the physical are s- somehow equally, <laughs> equally balanced. I'm witnessing that process unfold now with a very well-known person whose name I cannot divulge, but he's, he's going through that process right now. And, and of course, that's a purely psychological process. It has nothing to do with reality. Reality is what it is and doesn't care what we are thinking about it. Um, but uh, it's a fascinating process to witness that uh, for some people, that panpsychist step seems to be, an, although I think completely wrong, it seems to be a necessary psychological step towards realizing what might actually be be going on um yeah it's it's interesting to witness that especially when it's happening to someone i respect very much and and if i were to drop the name you would respect that person very much as well i respect him enough to never drop that name yeah well i uh, i'm old enough to uh uh have uh gone to college in the uh, uh, period of when there was lots of materialists and that was the dominant paradigm. And uh, so when I have seen in the, the 2000s, in the last 20 years, people like uh, Christopher Koch start to talk about panpsychism coming out of a neurobiological point of view, it's like, I don't think it's complete, 
but it's actually actually uh, very hopeful that uh, that community is actually moving in a direction that uh, I would say is aligned to my um, what I call my my spiritual experience or my you know so for for us we approach these problems from the point of view of, uh, of spiritual traditions or spiritual practices which are methodologies which intend to engender the kind of uh, realization about the nature of our ourselves and our, in our world that uh, we've been talking about, particularly at the beginning of this. So maybe, maybe by closing, I'd be interested because uh, before we started to record, you kind of made a point that you're not a mystic. You're not a direct experience kind of person. Um, I'm interested. Despite your personal history. Yeah, despite your personal history. That you history. described. <laughs> I, I mean, I think the lady doth protest too much to quote Shakespeare, but um, uh, maybe you could, um, by way of, since we're getting towards the end of our time together, uh, uh, let's talk about how this relates to the uh, spiritual project or how you see spiritual traditions and not religious fundamentalist traditions, but genuine spiritual traditions that try to take a account of our experience and give us practices that allow us to broaden our direct experience. How do, how do you see those traditions relate to the work that you've been describing? Look, reality isn't fragile. Um, it's our account of reality that is so fragile and so ephemeral. Reality itself is, is, is what there is. It's, it's surrounding us. It's touching and hugging us at all times. And actually it's within us because we are part of it. We are segments of reality. Reality is very robust. It's the most robust thing there is. It's always there. And, you know, um, so it is no surprise at all that throughout history, although our worldviews are in constant flux, constantly changing, for all kinds of motivations, not only reason and evidence, but political motivations, psychological motivations, power drives, pleasure drives, meaning drives. Despite all that, people across geographies and across history always come back and stumble upon a certain narrative, a certain view, which we may call non-duality or idealism in the Western tradition. It has, it goes by many other names, but, uh, it's the most steady thing in the sense that we are always coming back to it, always stumbling back on it. And then we part ways with it again, and we explore some other nonsense, and then, well, we bump into it again. If that is the best account we have of reality, and it, then it's no surprise that people bump against it all the time, because reality is not fragile. Reality is there all the time. And we are connected to it. We are part of it. So it's unavoidable that we, despite all the narratives in our minds that take, take us away from reality, we steadily bump against it again. Why? Because it's what's going on. It's very robust. It's always there. So since we started, I mean, there, there was a time we didn't separate spirituality from reality. Uh, the what we call spirituality today was was an account for reality. We didn't make this 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 dichotomy you know, with the spiritual and the real, which I think is a very unhelpful dichotomy, by the way. So uh, spirituality was philosophy, 
the love of wisdom, you know, a way to relate to reality. We didn't have a separate word, spiritual, for it. Um, uh, so these spiritual traditions, when they arose, they were accounts of reality. They were not spiritual traditions. They were just accounts of reality, a form of philosophy. So it, to me, it's no surprise that the Witoto in South America and the Australian Aboriginals on the other side of the world, um, through very different imagery, um, tell the same story, have the same underlying mythology, which is a reflection of idealism, of the world being a mental process. And the mind that sort of dreams it up suddenly wakes up within it. That's dissociation. Uh, that's exactly what happens in the dreams of patients of dissociative identity disorder. Multiple alters partake in the same dream and they even see one another. They talk to one another. They club one another over the head. Um, so that the Witoto say this is what's happening and that the Australian Aboriginals say this is what's happening. That uh, Parmenides in Greece uh, 2,500 years ago said this is what's happening. That um, the Hindus in the Hindus Valley 3,000 years ago said this is what's happening. Uh, that the Buddha said it uh, at the foot of the Himalayans two and a half, two, two and a half thousand years ago that this is what's happening. Is it surprising? No, because we cannot help but bump against reality since we are bang within it. Well, that's a uh, uh, a great conclusion uh, for our discussion and the, the other piece about this that I think is so important is as we talked about the crisis of meaning that uh, um, bringing forward these ideas and bringing forward them in a, in a way that's a bridge for the many of the thought leaders to start to change the narrative, I think is a very um, important worthy work and it seems like nature seems to be doing that through you so we uh appreciate that and appreciate the uh, uh <laughs> the conversation yes thank you very much it's been uh, fun and uh, interesting and challenging in in fun ways so thank you it's been a pleasure you're welcome you have been listening to the mystical positivist this is your host Stuart goodnick this week on the show we featured a pre-recorded conversation with bernardo kestrup philosopher and author of many books and essays, including The Idea of the World, A Multidisciplinary Argument for the Mental Nature of Reality, and More Than Allegory, on Religious Myth, Truth, and Belief. Bernardo is the executive director of Essentia Foundation. His work has been leading the modern renaissance of metaphysical idealism, the notion that reality is essentially mental. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com. Join us again next Saturday.